Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. I have some bad news. Christmas is officially over. Yesterday, for those of you who follow the church calendar, yeah, holy drudgery, that's what it says. Holy drudgery, Batman. That's not really what it Yesterday, if you follow the church calendar, was uh, Epiphany. It's the uh, 6th of January is the Epiphany. Some churches celebrate it on the, you know, the first Sunday after the actual Feast of the Epiphany. But the Epiphany, we talked about this. We don't follow the liturgical count, uh, calendar per se, but it's, it's interesting to look at from time to time. But I did speak about this last year. The Epiphany celebrates, among other things, but primarily the visit of the Magi uh, to, to Jesus, okay, and, and the, the gifts that he brought. And it's celebrated in, in uh, some traditions with the giving of gifts. And I spoke about the Magi uh, in a little more detail last year, and I'm not doing that today. Uh, but it's one of the things that's exciting about the visit of the Magi is they see this. It's celebrated as Jesus appearing in the flesh to the Gentile world because the Magi were not Jews. I mention that because we're going to come back around to that later in the sermon, back to the Epiphany. I also mention it because, again, Christmas is over. And have I told you guys? I can't remember that I really, really love Christmas. I really, really love Christmas. I always have, probably always will. And this is the part that varies from year to year for me. Christmas season is also a very busy season. It's busy for anybody that celebrates Christmas. It's particularly busy in my line of work because there's special things going on. And uh, so there's also an element of relief when it's over. Some years, I feel like that. It's like, that was nice. I'm always glad we had Christmas. But sometimes it's like, now we can get back into something more like a routine. But some years, like this year, it's more like postpartum depression. You know what I mean? Uh, that really is what it's like for me this year. I was sharing this with Beth. And uh, I'm not actually depressed. Far from it, Okay. I just really, really enjoyed the whole season this year, even though it wasn't a white Christmas, even though the weather wasn't Christmassy. I loved it, and I hated seeing it end. Uh, I announced on Facebook a couple days ago that I'm not taking my house lights down for a while. I'm leaving them up. They look good in snow. Everybody seemed to be okay with that. Christmas tree's actually still up in our house, but that's not me digging in my heels. That's just we haven't had a chance to take it down yet, but the outside lights are staying up. But more than the lights, more than the gatherings and uh, every other way we celebrate, more than the eggnog. Oh, man, eggnog. Prairie Farms eggnog, the best eggnog, by the way, was on sale at IGA yesterday. But I knew we were starting the fast today. So I drank the whole quart yesterday to get it out of the way. I didn't really. I, I didn't buy it. I didn't. Can you believe that? I didn't buy it. And I didn't overdo it on eggnog this year. But wowee, that's something I, I will miss about the season. But more than just missing those things, 
there's a sense of instead of getting back into a comfortable routine, it's more like going back to the grind, which is stupid for me to say, I know, because I have a job that I love. It still feels like leaving something sweet behind. Does anybody else feel that way? Nope, I'm seeing a couple heads nod, but that's okay. I know we can't dwell on it. That's not a healthy place to, to be, and it wouldn't be much of a sermon if all I did was stand up here and share my own idiosyncratic reactions to this and that. So let's look at at least one scripture. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Ecclesiastes apparently was written by Solomon and Pete Seeger because it says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Now, how many of you, be honest, you came to Christ at a certain time in life when you started reading the Bible, you read that part in Ecclesiastes and said, that's that bird's song. To remember, turn, turn. And you were maybe mad because turn, turn, turn wasn't in Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter 3. There is a time to decorate and a time to take down decorations. There's a time to relax and celebrate, and there's a time to get back to work. And again, I know how blessed I am to be able to do something that I enjoy for a living. But it wasn't always like that. And I know it's not like that for some of you, perhaps many of you. And Ecclesiastes talks about that too. Solomon writes about the depressing stuff like the futility of labor how even if you succeed, even if you succeed wildly, when you die, you die the same way as a fool dies, as the unsuccessful man, and you leave everything you worked for for somebody else. Ecclesiastes is not written as a motivational speech. <laughs> but I want you to notice and realize something. Even though Christmas was not, we talked a little bit about this, we didn't go deep into the history of Christmas down through the ages, uh, and it's worth looking at sometime. But even though Christmas was not celebrated annually until long after that first Christmas, there was, remember, plenty of celebration at that first Christmas. There was plenty special about that first Christmas. Think about it. We have it compressed into a few pages of Scripture. But over a relatively short period of time, Mary and Joseph each received an angelic visitation and this birth announcement, divine revelation about Jesus. On the night of Jesus' birth, the shepherds showed up and declared to them how they had had an angelic visitation and an announcement. And not just that, then multitudes of the heavenly host appeared praising God for the event that they were there to witness. That Jesus had been born, the Messiah had been born. What happened the next day? And the next day, well, for one thing, of course, there was the business of the time of purification that Mary had to deal with. Jesus had to be circumcised. Jesus had to be presented at the temple. There were all these ritual uh, obligations to fulfill. And meanwhile, and afterward, they had to take care of business. They had to eat. They had to work. They had to ponder exactly what it was they were supposed to do with this baby the Son of God. 
They had the words of Simeon and Anna in Jerusalem, and they worked. They traveled back to Nazareth. Somewhere in there, they had the visit from the Magi when Jesus was probably between one and two years old. And they fled to Egypt, and they worked, and they pondered. And they returned to Nazareth and worked and raised the Son of God. Now, I suspect that Jesus was a very good baby. I suspect that Jesus was a very good boy. You know, children need discipline, they need raising, but, you know, the Bible makes it clear that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But why is that? It's because we're born with the sin nature. Jesus was not. But he still had to be cleaned. He still had to be fed. He still had to be taught. He had to learn to work, very likely alongside his adoptive father. He worked as a carpenter, or more likely a stonemason. Life was more or less taking care of business until Jesus began his ministry. I wonder, did it ever seem like drudgery? Perhaps Joseph enjoyed his work. I mentioned a minute ago that I have a job that I enjoyed, but I haven't always had a job like this. I spent most of my time working in retail, uh, groceries, uh, grocery stores specifically, not all. I worked in a, on the loading dock in a distribution center warehouse for a while. I waited tables, which I always thought I would enjoy, but I, I more or less hated that job. I worked for the park district in Tulsa the summers I was at uh, Rama. But I loved the grocery stores. I loved working with people. I loved dealing with customers. Uh, loved my job. But I got to tell you, you know what I loved even more? Day off. There were days, especially those summers, uh, in between uh, school years at Rama, where I would get, I had to report at 7 o'clock for my job with the park district and got home just in time to shower change and go to my, my job at the store. And there were was, there was some summer mornings where I just did not feel like going to work. It was a grind. And we talked about that a few weeks ago too, didn't we? How God built the feasts right into the law to relieve the drudgery and to remind them about something bigger than the day-to-day -day concerns. So when I try to get inside the heads of Joseph and Mary, going about the daily grind, and daily laboring under the burden and privilege of raising Jesus, ultimately not even knowing exactly what it was they were raising him to do. They didn't know they were raising him to go to the cross. But that gives me hope. It should give you hope. All they knew was that what they needed to do day by day by day. But they did it in a way that glorified and honored God. Right in the middle of it. Little bit. Little bit like the ten things we talked about a few weeks ago. When you're not focusing on one big project, when you don't have this blinding revelation about what you're supposed to do right now, there are still at least ten things you can be doing day by day by day that honor God, glorify God, and bring purpose to your life. I told Beth I was naming this message a holy drudgery. And she suggested that I call it Glorifying God in the Grind, which is probably a better title, but I'd already turned in my title. Let's look at a couple of familiar passages of Scripture, and then I'm going to share one more really cool thing with you, 
and then we'll talk a little bit about the fast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 reads, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 31, if you want to follow along in your Bible, and I encourage you to do that. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is a good one to remember, uh, but the principle here is determined by the context. Context is king when you're trying to figure out what a verse means. And this looks pretty straightforward, but the principle here is not to look for a specific way to say, praise God, in the middle of eating or drinking or whatever you're doing, but to make sure, to make as sure as we can while we're doing everything, not to do anything that casts dispersions on our faith. The issue Paul was dealing with here in so many places, and this strikes us as such a, a weird thing because it's not really something we deal with today. It's not something we deal with as, at all, as far as I know. But one of the big stumbling blocks in the early days of Christianity, especially as it spread to the Gentile world, was, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Do you remember reading through the book of Acts this came up? It came up in, in a, at least a couple of Paul's letters. And here was the deal. You had, you know, this was a pagan culture, Rome, Uh, was pretty tolerant of all sorts of religions as long as they didn't threaten Caesar. And uh, so people were offering, they would bring offerings. We know about the offerings that were brought to the temple that that were sacrificed in Jewish society, but other people sacrificed to other gods, false gods, idols. And uh, they would... They would, be, they would have uh, booths on the street. You know, it would be like walking into a restaurant, fast food restaurant, placing your order, or, or actually, actually going into a, a, a temple, a little uh, booth, a little uh, uh, what about, strip mall. Like we have churches and strip malls, they might have a little place of worship. Come in here, a, a quick altar, stop in, make your, altar, uh, make your offering. So somebody would bring in their animal, they'd chop it up, they'd throw it on the fire and, and perform their ritual, and then, essentially, throw the meat over the wall to the, to the guy in the next booth who would then serve it, who would sell it and serve it as food rather than it go to waste. They didn't burn the whole thing into ashes, after all. And it was just meat. And Paul had said in other, in other writings, it's just meat. There's nothing holy or unholy about it. It's food. But people would say, no, that food has been tainted because it has been used in the service of a false god. And Paul would say, but that God is not a God at all. It's a mute stone or a piece of wood. It's just food. Eat it. Okay? But there were some who were like, this was a real, this was something they just couldn't get over. So here's what Paul says in this whole passage. In verse 23, we're still in, what I say, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. If you don't know, you don't have to. Don't know where the meat come. You don't meat comes from. You don't have to worry about it. Right. Verse twenty-six: For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. 
for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What he's dealing here, I think, the closest we can come to that, I think it's roughly analogous to the debate about whether or not it's okay for Christians to drink. This is something that not the whole, whole Christian world doesn't struggle with, but it's certainly uh, a thorny issue here in the West, or here in America. Uh, and I think Paul would say, if you asked him, look, there's nothing inherently wrong with a glass of wine. Just don't get drunk. And if you are in the company of people who consider it sinful or unchristian, just abstain for their sake. And here's what I picture. Notice he says, you're invited to the home of an unbeliever. He said, take advantage of that opportunity. Accept the invitation and eat with them. Don't ask them where the meat came from. But if they say, oh, by the way, this meat we're serving was sacrificed to idols. That's them seeing if you're going to do something that they think a Christian shouldn't do. Does that make sense? Even if you think there's nothing wrong with it, you think they think something's wrong with it, so don't do it. And it would be like you hanging out with some friends, and they, so they're serving alcohol, and you, your conscience is clear. I don't see anything wrong with having a beer. I don't see anything wrong with having a, some wine. But if they offer it to you and say, hey, Christian, want some alcohol? At that point, you should probably say, no, I'm okay. Because they, for some reason, think Christians shouldn't drink. So just don't muddy the waters. Don't you can enjoy your liberty without flaunting your liberty, and your liberty should always take a back seat to your responsibility. Okay? Now, let's move on to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, this is potentially a dangerous verse because, taken once again in isolation, people can use it to justify just about anything. Men and even nations have embarked on disastrous and misguided adventures using the name of Jesus to justify um, their own personal aims. And Christianity, historically, has taken a beating over certain episodes. Uh, the Crusades, anybody, the Inquisition, scores of things. And this verse obviously is not giving us carte blanche to do whatever we want to do and then simply appropriate the name of Jesus in order to legitimize it. Once again, let's read it in context. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what's the principle here? Using the name of Jesus to justify what you want to do, whatever it is? No, of course not. The principle here is to develop Christ-like character and to conduct ourselves in our relationships uh, in accordance with that character so that when we speak, uh, so that the words we speak and the deeds we do are consistently representative of our relationship with Christ. Does that make sense? Live our lives in such a way, do and speak in such a way that is consistent with the character of Christ. That's what it means, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. Now, right after that is the best one, at least for our purposes today. Still in Colossians, still chapter 3, in verse 23, it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The good news is, this is a verse that as far as I know, uh, is not commonly abused or misunderstood. The bad news is, not commonly doesn't mean never. Uh, I'll tell you a story. This is kind of a silly story. This is a story from my days at Rama, uh, as, a, as, as a Rama student in Tulsa. I'm most famous if people, if I tell people, I'm going to tell you a little story from my days at Rama. Anybody who at least was in my youth group will say, oh, is it the Billy story? That's probably the favorite story that I tell, and I, probably, I don't think I've told it to this group since, at least since I've been back. But this is the Zipporah story, which I haven't told nearly as often. Uh, but there was, uh, I was working at a, uh, at a grocery store, and I'll talk more about that here in a little bit. But I was the evening manager and uh, loved the people I worked with, loved the customers, and uh, was, uh, I had to prove, one of the things I had to do uh, was if, uh, if, I had to, if somebody wrote a check over the amount of purchase, I had to initial it to make sure it was okay to give cash back. That was really common back in the day. I don't know how many places do that these, these days. But there was a, a woman who had written a check and I had to sign off on it. And her name on the check was Zipporah. Anybody know who she was in the Bible? Moses' wife, right? And I'd, I'd ne- I had, can you believe it? I had never met a Zipporah in real life before. And so I said, Zipporah. I said, uh, I said are you Jewish? She says, yes, I'm actually from Israel. Uh, I've been here a year. And I said, wow, that's so cool. She goes, you know the name? I said, yeah, it's Moses' wife. She goes, yes, yes. And Oh, she was excited. I said, well, I'm a Rhema student. I said, are you a, a Christian by any chance? She goes, yes, I love Jesus. And I'm, I'm just, it's just, it's my whole life. I'm like, wow. So we chit-chat a little bit. And then, uh, then she like came in the next day and she was talking. I said, well, it's nice to, boy, it's really nice to meet you, Sephora. Uh, uh, glad you're here. Got some work to do. And then she came in the next day and said, do you have any work for me? I'll do anything. I will scrub the toilets. I will sweep the floors. I said, will you bag groceries? We could use you to bag groceries. She says, yes, I'll bag groceries. So did the interview, had her fill out an application, did the interview. We hired her. And right off the bat, she became the most loyal, hardworking, submissive person to me, but to nobody else. 
Then she started bringing notes, long notes to me at work. I'd say, I'll have to read these later. But it was like God showed me that you are my leader. You are the one that I will follow. You're the one I will obey. You are the one who's going to be my husband. Did I ever tell you this story? (laughs) Spoiler alert, it didn't happen, okay? And so it's like, all right, Sephora, this is, this is not work-related. We will talk about this stuff later. But the problem was, I was in charge of the whole store. We had a front-end manager, and when he, usually, unfortunately, she would say, Sephora, do such and such, she would just say, I don't do anything anybody tells me to do except Scott. Well, that didn't last long. We're talking, this whole episode took place like in like a week, okay? This, it didn't take long to realize this wasn't going to work. So Cheryl, the front-end manager, says, Scott, you've got to do something about Sephora. She'll only do what you tell her to do. So I took Sephora over to Cheryl, and I said, Sephora, you'll do whatever I tell you to do, right? Yes. Here's what I'm telling you to do. Do whatever she tells you to do. <laughs> if you can't do that, you have to leave. And she couldn't do it, so I fired her. And she didn't leave me alone for a while. She, kept, she would deliver pies and leave them at, at my door, you know, and I would throw them away because I thought maybe she's trying to poison me, you know, or something <laughs> like that. But <laughs> Anyway, uh, there are some people, I've known them, you probably have too, who have such a king's kid mentality that they can't submit to anybody. They can't submit to any human authority. I don't work for you. I work for the Lord Jesus Christ. It says so right in the Bible. That's what I'm supposed to do. Whatever you do, work as unto the Lord. What's this verse actually saying, though? It's saying you can do both. How about we read it in context? Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, read this as employees. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, your bosses. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. What's he saying there? He's saying, he's not saying, don't work for your master, work for the Lord. He's saying, you serve the Lord by working for your master. You obey the Lord by obeying your boss. You follow the rules because he's the boss, and in doing so, you are honoring the Lord. And if your boss is a jerk, God will take care of it. Trust him. You are working for your reward. My boss never recognizes me. God does. We honor God when we do our jobs well. 
We honor God when we honor our boss, even when our boss is a jerk. I told you twice now, I think, that I loved my grocery store work, and I did love it. And that was never more true than when I worked in Tulsa. I loved my shift. I was in charge of the store uh, from uh, 4 p.m. to midnight, and that, was, that covered the busiest shopping hours. And I made it my business to invite coworkers to church. I rarely uh, drove an empty car to church. Usually had three or four people with me, and these were friends that I made on the job. Uh, I would share the gospel when I could with customers. Some of those customers became great friends. That's exactly how I met Mike Goolsbey, by the way. Many of you remember Mike Goolsbey, right? Uh, but this is important. I never lost sight of the fact that I was there to do a job for the company and for my boss. I experienced the favor of God by, you know, I started off as a cashier and in very little time had that person in charge role. And that was the favor of God, but I also worked conscientiously. I worked in a way that made my boss look good. I worked in a way that made the store and the company look good. And here was the upshot of those two years. When I left, when I was getting ready to leave, he said, this is something, this is really interesting, and it's, it's clear in my mind that it happened. I'm not sure when, but they, uh, Rama, they used to have two events. Well, they had more than two events, but they had a homecoming event, and then they had winter Bible seminar. And I think homecoming was in the fall. I'm almost positive it was. And then Winter Bible Seminars in February. And then shortly after I left Rama, they started combining those two things, homecoming and Winter Bible, so that you can kill two birds right now. I won't share that quote right now. It's funny. But I think uh, mom and dad were down there for homecoming. And this would have been in 91. I was getting ready to leave Rama, but was still living there. And dad, uh, uh, I think I may have just taken mom and dad to introduce them to my boss. He was a great guy and a believer. And he said to me in the presence of my parents, he said, Scott, if you know of any other Rama students that are maybe coming to school that need a job, let me know. I love to hire Rama students. Now, he didn't say that because, just because of me. He said it partly because of me. But I wasn't the only Rama student that worked there. There was at least one other guy uh, that I can remember who worked there the same time I did. And there, I'm sure there were a couple or a few more before me. But dad had the opportunity to speak a little bit uh, to the homecoming crowd. And he shared that. And he said, this is a testament to how far God has brought Rhema. How this, how this uh, school has matured because that wasn't always the case. That wasn't the reputation Rama students had in the workforce when mom and dad were students there. And because of that, a big chunk of our orientation, Jeff, you can probably testify to this, and anybody else who's been to Rama could testify to this, that during orientation, they hammered things like, oh sure, the school rules and everything, but they would talk about your job. They ain't hiring you to preach the gospel, they're hiring you to do some work. You get a job, you do the job. Amen. I don't do the best Pastor Hagen impression, but that's who that was supposed to be. The other thing, they would, they would talk about things like tipping at restaurants. Don't you leave a Rama Bible Church tract as your tip. 
That that doesn't bear good witness to Christ or to the school. If you leave a tract as a tip, you better leave double cash tip with it. These are the simple things that make so much sense now. But you know, struggling poor Raymond students, like, I'm not going to leave you a dollar when I can leave you a free tract that's worth millions of dollars, you know? Oh, and they'd talk about how these, these, these waitresses would see the corner of a $20 bill sticking out from underneath the plate, and they pull it out, and it's fake. It's a, it's a tract instead. Oh, that's going to make them love Jesus, isn't it? It's going to make them love you and respect the church. But if we do everything we do as unto the Lord, it changes how we approach these things. And that was just a microcosm of it. You're not just down, down there living. You are representing Rama Bible Training Center. Oh, we're representing Living Word Family Church. We're representing the kingdom of God. We're representing Jesus Christ. Now, and that's what that passage is talking about, Colossians. Now, here's the cool thing that I told you I was going to mention a little while ago. And it's something that I just learned yesterday. Or if I'd learned it before, I'd certainly forgot it. Oh, and I forgot to put something in my pocket, but I'm good for it, I promise you. Um, I learned this yesterday after I had my sermon mapped out. I mentioned a little bit ago the celebration of the, the Epiphany which was technically yesterday. Uh, sometimes uh, churches will celebrate it. They, would be, they might be celebrating it today because it's the Sunday after the Epiphany. Uh, but I have a shiny gold dollar coin for anybody who can tell me what tomorrow is. What is the Monday after Epiphany called? Does anybody know? No looking at your phones. Does anybody know what it's called? Shout it out or raise your hand. Because I'm not going to say, I'm, not, I'm going to tell you in a second, and you can't say, I, I, that's what I said. It's called Plow Monday. Plow Monday. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? It's glorious. Plow Monday. And there's no mysterious meaning behind the use of the word plow. It means a plow or to plow with a plow, like plowing a field. It was an official recognition that the holidays were over and it was time to go back to work. In the old days, when a plow was you know, a wheel with a blade that a horse pulled and you half pushed behind it, they would actually bring a physical plow into the church service as part of this recognition. And there would be a prayer for God's blessing on man's labor, on his tools, and on the land. That's kind of beautiful. We move from a sacred season into the grind, into drudgery. You're a redeemed people. You're a rescued people. You're a chosen people. A people for God's own possession. And we as Christians, I believe we should celebrate Christmas with joy, with gladness, and certainly with a focus on Christ. But the good news is that we, when we celebrate the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us, he is still Emmanuel, God with us, the rest of the year. He never leaves. And as we face the grind, we start the year with a fast. You don't have to. Nothing in the Bible about it. 
and we certainly don't require it. So you can still come here, still be a member of this church, but it's something I encourage you to partake in, participate in. And for the last several years, we've done this. We start off with a three-week fast. So let me start, let me spend a few minutes reviewing this. Bear with me. I know most of you have heard this. Most of you have heard it multiple times. But uh, keep in mind, there are people who are hearing this for maybe the first or maybe just the second time about why we do this. And we'll spend some time on some specifics. We've got three weeks, and we'll be talking about this every week. Uh, But a fast, biblically and strictly speaking, is simply abstaining from food. Uh, Extreme examples also include abstaining from water. Some people have specified you should abstain from food and stimulants, but that's all details. No calories, no stimulants. Only water is the typical fast. But what we have generally encouraged, especially if you're not in the habit of fasting, is more of what we, what we call a Daniel-type fast. You know, Daniel more than once participated in a fast where he didn't eat any tasty food. He didn't eat any enjoyable food. Just some raw fruits and vegetables or something like that where you specify, here's a category of food that I will limit myself to, or here's a category of food that I will avoid for three weeks. Popular options over the year include no sweets. Uh, only fruits and vegetables. Only one meal a day is another good one. But it doesn't matter. Uh, some people, whether it's because food really isn't an issue for them or because they are on a, a particular diet for medical reasons, uh, choose to abstain from something else like uh, technology or TV. Um, something that, uh, you know, that will free up some time for what? Prayer. Um, the way I've always described it, I don't think I've let a year go by without using this phrase, these three weeks we are laying aside something natural in pursuit of something supernatural. It's not, when you fast, you're not laying aside a bad habit because it's a bad habit. You're laying aside a legitimate pleasure in pursuit of something that's much more important. And ideally, you take the time that you would have spent eating that meal or playing that game or watching that TV show and you spend that extra time in extra prayer. Biblically speaking, you can absolutely and should absolutely pray without fasting. But biblically speaking, there's no such thing as a biblical fast without praying. You're just not eating. A biblical fast is fasting and praying. Uh, Now, for what it's worth... Even even though fasting is very common in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it wasn't a big part of the law. As far as I can see, the only fast that God commanded the Israelites to observe was the Day of Atonement. But he certainly seemed to approve of fasting. Now, he did weigh in, as we will look at, on uh, what he thought was a good fast and what the Israelites thought was a good fast and where that difference of opinion was. But uh, the other thing I always, always want to remind you of and surely some of you can quote me on this by now, is that fasting does not get God's attention on me. Fasting gets my attention on God. And to be perfectly honest, um, you know, that, you know, that's the design I have found, and many of you have found, I think, that in the early days of the fast, <laughs> it gets my attention on fasting. It gets my attention on food. Okay, I'm very keenly aware that I am not eating something I want to eat, Uh, And that's why three weeks is a good length of time, because it gives you time to get used to the idea. 
I, I have said many times, it's not a universal truth. It's not the same for everybody. And it's not the same for me every year. That second week is kind of the sweet spot because you've got a week under your belt where you've gotten used to the idea. The family meal is still two weeks away. You're, so you're not thinking about, oh, we're almost done. You can just start focusing on what the fast is really for. Um, but that brings me, what is the fast really for? Why, why are we doing this? Well, first let me say that you can, and many of you ha have, fasted on your own. You can set a, a, a time aside. Maybe say, for the next three days I will eat nothing. I will drink only water while I seek God specifically about a particular issue. Some direction, maybe a decision, an upcoming decision. Uh, or maybe God lays somebody on your heart to pray for fervently. But this is a church-wide fast. Again, nobody's required to participate. But since it's a church-wide fast, a church fast, let's seek the Lord together about what his plans are for Living Word Family Church. For us as a church, I encourage you, pray for the staff, pray for the leadership, pray for the finances of the church. Not because we're in trouble, we're not. We're a blessed church. But just that we continue to, to be a blessing and we're, we're, that we're able not just to be blessed, but continue to increase in our ability to bless others and other ministries. Uh, pray for every ministry team that God brings across to your mind. Pray for the ushers, pray for the teachers, the praise team, the, the youth leaders, the greeters, the social committee. There's so much to think about, and I'm going to do my best to remind you and encourage you in specific areas to pray about over the next three weeks. I'll do that via email. And pray about how God would use you to make Living Word Family Church a better church. Where can you serve? What can you give? We are praying that two-sided coin. We desire that Living Word continues to be a place where our spiritual needs are met, but we also pray that we continue to grow into a part of the body that supplies those needs. You know, this is something we've talked about. You absolutely should be going to a church where you are being fed. But when I talk to a mature believer who's not going to church anymore and say, why, why aren't you going anymore? Well, we just aren't being fed. Is that really? Do you need to go to church to be fed? Are you not old enough to feed yourself now? You should be going to church to feed others. You should be going to church to serve and make this church a place that is feeding others. I believe that as we do this together, we will certainly grow stronger as a local body. We'll, we'll also find new joy in the taking care of business aspect of our lives. That's something that I find. I believe you'll find it. We'll find it together. I promise we'll talk more about how God works, in that, works that in us through fasting over the next few Sundays. Meanwhile, praise and worship team, you can come on up. Uh, the rest of you stand if you're able. I want to begin to close this service with a prayer. This was shared on social media by Pastor Shane Bishop. He pastors Christ Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. This is called, his, this is called a post-holiday back-to-work prayer. I'm going to read it. You don't need to repeat it after me, but listen to what I'm saying. And if you decide, yep, that's my heart's prayer too, you say amen. And that's how you've prayed the prayer. Don't say amen yet. You don't know if you agree with it, brother. Here's the prayer. I love it. Almighty God, the holidays are over and it appears I have not yet retired. It is back to work and back to routine. Please grant me the grace to be more patient, more loving, more forgiving, 
and more productive in this new year. Also give me the grace to be less complaining, less fault-finding, less selfish, and less distracted. May I represent myself well, may I represent my company well, and may I represent you well. Give me a renewed passion for my vocation in this new year and for finding ways to serve you within it. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you find yourself feeling genuinely stuck in the grind, if you can't see any real purpose in your day-to-day life, I need to ask you, do you know Jesus? I mean know him, not know who he is. Because finding purpose in life, even as a believer, does not mean finding a position in occupational ministry. That's a calling, not a goal in life. You understand that? People say, well, man, if I w-. the really fired up, strongly believing Christians, those are the ones who go into full-time occupational ministry. That has nothing to do with it. Full-time occupational ministry is what it is because God calls people to it. It's not an achievement. Don't set that as your goal. Don't seek that if God hasn't called you to it. It's not a rank. It's not a reward for special obedience. It's a call. Don't aspire to something God hasn't called you to do. Purpose is found in the things we just talked about. And it all flows from having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with a relationship with God the Father that is only available through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is uh, one of those silly little stories that I tell every few years. Uh, When I was working at that warehouse job, distribution center in Seymour, Indiana, it was a filthy, hard, physical job, and I loved it. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the exercise. But it was just, it was a job. It was a grind, okay? And, uh, but that was also about the time I met Beth. And uh, I've told you, you know, here are these, these boxes coming off this big container ships. You know, they've been, they've been in this container for months, and they're coated with dust. And you'd go home filthy, and, and you'd be choking, you know, coughing this stuff up and blowing it out of your nose for an hour after work. But I'd go by those boxes, and I would just write, Beth, in the dust. I just was thinking about her and just being in that relationship, engaged to her and then married to her. I can't explain it. I just felt different walking into work, especially after, after our wedding, walking into work with that ring on. I just felt like I'm going to unload trucks like I had been. But it felt like, man, I'm somewhere, going somewhere to do something for my wife. Anybody remember that line from camp years and years ago at, at, at Summer Scream? This was the thing that uh, Ray, uh, what was his name? Ray Hollis said, here's what you need to tell yourself every day you wake up, everywhere you go, say, I'm someone going somewhere to do something for God. No matter where you're going, no matter what you're doing, that purpose, that relationship, if you have that relationship, you know what I'm talking about. It infuses everything you do with purpose. You can find a way to glorify him in everything that you do.
what I experienced just in that feeling, I, you know, walking in the warehouse, being, but I'm, yes, I'm a, a goofy dude with no college degree walking in to do a warehouse job, but I'm a goofy dude with no degree who's married to Beth walking into a warehouse to do a job. And it changed everything. And a relationship with Christ does that to a degree that you cannot imagine if you haven't experienced it. What do you do? doesn't matter what you do. I do this. I deliver papers. I work at a warehouse. I preach at a church. Do you find that fulfilling? I'll tell you what I find fulfilling. I have a relationship with the creator of the universe. Jesus Christ lives inside this guy who goes to the warehouse, who delivers papers, who cleans sidewalks. It's not what I do, man. It's who I am. Share one more quick thing with you. Years ago, when we were doing the podcast, and we're going to fire that up again someday, but we were interviewing, this is one of the best podcast series we did. We had Dr. Joe Thomas, who's a professor of Christian history at Urbana Theological Seminary, and a dear old friend of mine. I mean, a dear longtime friend of mine. Neither of us is old, for crying out loud. But uh, we had him in because it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and he's a Christian historian, and we wanted to take advantage of his expertise. But he actually took the first, we had him for three episodes, and most of the first episode, he shared his testimony. I was privileged to know him uh, for several months before he became a Christian. We met in college, and he was talking about his journey, the questions he was asking, and the exploring that he was doing, the philosophers he was reading, and, and he had me, he had another guy uh, who were speaking into his life, and he went to a, a film showing one night on the campus of the University of Illinois that was uh, either produced by or featured Francis Schaeffer, who was a modern Christian philosopher that he was reading, and he was curious what this film was, and he liked it. He said, but unexpectedly, at the end, the man who was hosting this viewing stood up and gave an altar call. And he said, if you find yourself believing these things, and you're ready, you need to ask yourself, are you ready to surrender your life to Christ? Do you want to invite Christ into your life? He says, I wasn't expecting to hear that invitation, but as I heard it, I remember thinking to myself, yes, that's exactly what I want. He says, so I did. I just prayed a prayer in my heart from my seat, and nothing changed. I went home that night, and here's the line that just grabs me every time I hear it. He says, nothing changed that night. I went home to my apartment, I went to sleep, and when I woke up the next day, the world was on fire. He meant that in a good way. Everything was brighter, everything was just bursting with energy. He was seeing the whole world with new eyes. He was born again. He had a brand new Christian, got saved one night, woke up the next morning, and his worldview, his view of the world had literally changed. Christ can do that for you. Do you want to feel that fire? Do you want to see that fire? Do you want to know where real purpose comes from? Do you want to surrender your life to Christ today? If you haven't, please know. There's a whole other sermon. <laughs> it's a little less comfortable about heaven and hell. But just know this for today. It's what you were made for. You'll never find your ultimate purpose in life. No matter how much you might be enjoying aspects of the day today, you will never find fulfillment, true joy, and purpose unless you realize the purpose you were made for, that relationship with God. Then you can begin to glorify Him 
and enjoy him forever. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for purpose. Thank you for the unity we enjoy at all times. But thank you for this opportunity to partake uh, of this fast together. Thank you for eyes that can see the joy and the glory of every moment. Thank you for sanctifying our drudgery, helping us to see the grind as something much more, as an opportunity to bring glory to the kingdom of God. And Father, right now, it's my prayer. I believe it's the prayer of every believer in this room that if there is anybody who has not experienced that life-changing, born-again experience, who has never surrendered their life to your lordship, and therefore has never known the purpose that you have for them, that you would convict them, that you would encourage them, that you would light a fire in them that would not allow them to leave this room until they yield their lives to you and find their life in you. Pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If that's a decision you want to make as they start singing, just come up here and let me pray with you. Don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed. We've all done it. Come up here and receive that gift of eternal life. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.